0: And welcome to Unity Presbyterian Church Online. This week in worship, Pastor David takes a look at the incorrect statement, Good people go to heaven. Let's listen. What does a person have to do to go to heaven? I know that's a lofty question for early in the morning. So we're going to have to wake ourselves up and really kind of say, "Ooh, okay, is that what we're studying today? And, and it is. It is. Because remember, we're talking about incorrect statements. These are statements that we tend to pick up over time that we think, oh yeah, that's in the Bible somewhere. And then upon further study, we realize, no, they're they're not. Those statements aren't in the Bible. And so the one we're studying today is good people go to heaven and bad people don't. I spoke with someone once who was adamant that when they died, they would stand before God and that God would have two lists. And on one list would be all of their good deeds, all the good things they'd ever done in their life. And on the other list would be all their bad deeds, their regrets, their bad actions. And he was convinced that his good list had to outnumber his bad list if God was going to accept him. Now I walked away from that conversation going, no, that's not right. And I know that's not right. And yet as a pastor, I've been surprised at how often I've heard something similar to that line of thinking. Well, it's got to be about our behavior, right? It's got to be about how good we are. And oh, those other people, those who are bad, well, we don't have to worry about them. It's a common theme, particularly when people are, are nearing the end of their life, when they reflect on their life and they wonder, have I done enough? I've, I've spoken with people, I'm thinking of one gentleman in particular, who when I talked with him, he said, I just worry that I wasn't good enough, that I made too many mistakes. My heart broke for him in, in hearing that conversation, because I could hear the stress in his words and, and the anxiety in his heart when he looked back on his life and he wondered, was he good enough? Did he live a life up to whatever standard he believed God was asking him to? Is this what the Bible teaches? That a person has to be good enough, however you measure that, in order to get into heaven? We may have all said at some point in our lives something to the effect of good people go to heaven and bad people don't. But that idea is not in the Bible. And so what does the Bible teach about how we are saved? Well, that's what I want to study together this morning. And we're going to begin with the text from the book of Titus. Now, Titus was a pastor, and he served two churches, one in Crete and one in Dalmatia. Uh, He was heavily involved in both of those churches in organizing early ministries to the poor. So Titus was a pastor, and his mentor was Paul. Yeah, Paul probably converted him and then was an ongoing mentor for Titus. And Paul wrote him a letter. That's the letter of Titus in your Bibles. It's a letter from Paul, who's a mentor to Titus, to Titus, as he is pastoring these churches. And Paul, in this letter, writes to him some foundational theology that he wants Titus to pass along to his church. And so we're going to begin in chapter three, because here's what Paul wants Titus' church to know. Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. So how does Paul want Christians in the first century to act? Well, he gives us a whole list here, doesn't it? Doesn't he? I'm curious what stands out to you on this list of how Paul wants the church in the first century to be. What I notice is he wants them to be people of peace. He wants them to be ready to do good at all times. That's what I notice from Paul, which it's really incredible because when I look at the church in the first century, I realize that the communities that they were in were very hostile towards them. The, the amount of oppression and persecution that these early churches face, it's a miracle that any of them survived. But Paul says, when you're in the midst of all of that hostility, I want you to be people of peace. I want you to be ready to be, to do good. I want you to be gentle, considerate. It is really incredible what Paul is calling this early community to be. Really, this is a list that we today should still seek to emulate. And what I think is even more interesting is Paul recognizes that these people were not always this way. Now, here's what Paul says next. He says, but at one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Oh, I see. Paul's playing a game of opposites here, right? Is that what we have going on? Where Paul has these two different lists, and he says, on the one hand, is the type of list that I want you to live into being uh, peaceable, uh, being kind and considerate, but then he displays this other list, and he says, but we once were like that, weren't we? And did you notice that he includes himself on that list? He says, we, we were once foolish. We were once disobedient. We were once a slave to our pleasures. What is Paul trying to convey with these dueling lists? I think Paul is setting forth two different ways of life, ways that you can truly live in this life. And the first one, the first way of life, the one he encourages, has all of those good attributes, striving for peace, being considerate, all of that. But then the second list, that second way of life, Paul says, no, when we did those things, you knew you weren't being the type of person that you even wanted to be. I want to note two aspects of that list. Paul notes that there are some vices in this world that will never truly satisfy. They will just leave you wanting more and more, no matter how much you indulge in them. I, I would think we would use the term addiction today, but Paul used the term enslaved. People were enslaved to their vices. And he also uses that Phrase, being hated and hating one another to describe how they were. I think what he's doing is he's describing a person who believes that the whole world is out to get them. It's this idea that if I'm going to succeed, then you have to fail. It's that attitude in life. Well, if Paul and the people in Titus's church once lived like this second list, then what changed for them? What changed to allow them to live like people on that first list? Well, that's what Paul says next. He says, but but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. So what changed? What moved them from the second list to the first list? God. Or rather, an experience of God in their lives. God saved them. When they experienced the love and the kindness of Jesus, their Savior, they were saved from having to live a life of hating others and being hated, of living only for one's pleasures and not purpose. Yes, they were saved. Now, I think we can all admit that we want that sort of life for ourselves, too, don't we? And so, how is it that they were saved? Is it because God looked on them and found them worthy? Did God look at their good deeds and consider them to be good enough? Yes, is it because God just tallied up all the good things that the people of Titus' church did and said, okay, I find you worthy? Is that how God saved them? Well, obviously the answer to all those questions is a resounding no. That's not how God decided to save the people in Titus' church. So how did God make that decision? Well, let's read now the full verse. So Paul says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Yes, they were saved, because of God's mercy. And to make that point abundantly clear, Paul points out it was not because of any righteous thing that you had done. There was no good deed or action that earned God's approval. Quite the opposite. Remember, they were living life on that second list where their lives did not measure up in any form or fashion. And so why did God choose to save them? because of God's mercy. Now, in Greek, the words mercy and compassion are very similar to one another. So what we're seeing here is that God chose to have compassion on them because of God's abundant mercy. Now, let's apply this to ourselves for a second. What are we supposed to learn from what Paul is saying to the church, uh, to Titus's church? Well, if we apply this to us, then I think what Paul is saying is that Your salvation depends on God's mercy and not on your good works. Paul builds on that point in a letter he wrote to the Ephesians as well. This is a church in Ephesus when Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Okay, so I want you to memorize. By grace through faith. Okay, Those terms, we, we need to walk around just humming them in the back of our minds this morning. And so, in fact, you can help me with that today. Okay, These two sections here, you're going to be the by grace section, okay? And then these two sections, you're the through faith section. So you're going to repeat after me, nice and loud because you're a smaller section over here, right? But you got it. By grace. Oh, no, no. You're repeating after me. All right. Let's try that again. By grace. By grace. Oh, see, that was good. That sounded good. That sounded loud. Okay, you're the through faith section. So, repeat after me, through faith. Through faith. So, how are we saved? By grace. That's right. We are saved by grace. We are saved by God's unwarranted mercy on us, where there was nothing we did to deserve it. There was no reason God looked upon us and said, oh, this is why. This is why I'm going to save you. We were simply saved by God's mercy and grace. And what was the method that God used? Through faith. That's exactly right. It is through faith. Through us putting our trust in God. For us believing that, yes, this is possible, that God wants a relationship with me, that God is going to save me, that is how God saves. It is by grace, and it is through faith. God's abundant mercy was poured out into our world, accessible to all of us. That is what we're studying today. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, up until this point, this has been mostly theory, not practice. You know, it's, it's been mostly Paul saying, this is how it works. But we haven't really seen an example of it, have we? So that's what I'd want to do uh, with the time we have left in this sermon, is I want to study an actual example from the scriptures of how a person is saved by grace through faith. And so look for those themes, the themes of grace and faith in this next story. Did you know that at the end of Jesus' life, when he was crucified, that he was not alone? No, he was crucified with two other people, one on each side of him. This is their story. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. So Jesus is crucified. But as he's in this act of crucifixion, as he's struggling for his life on the cross, he's not alone. No, there's a person on his left and right. And we're told that they're criminals. Now, we're never told what their crime is, but we have to assume that their crime was severe enough that Rome decided to crucify them, which Rome wouldn't usher out that punishment just for any crime. And so there's a good chance that these were violent men who were a threat to Rome. So these are the people that are surrounding Jesus as he prepares to die. And both of the criminals speak to Jesus but in very different ways. Here's what the first criminal says. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. There's that theme again, save, save yourself and us. So this first criminal wants to be saved. But our question is, what does salvation look like for him? I think what he means for salvation, for being saved, is he wants an escape from his punishment. He wants Jesus just to take him off of his cross so that he can go and and be released from his crimes, so he can go and, and live his life again. Yes, that's what salvation looks like. And so for this man, Jesus is merely a means to an end. He sees Jesus and says, I think there's some power there, and it's some power that I can harness for myself. Yes, why don't you save me also, Jesus, if you're going to save yourself? For this man, Jesus is just a tool that he can use to get what he wants. And, And that's why I think in his pain, he's hurling insults at Jesus. It's because he does not truly care who Jesus is. He simply wants Jesus to save him. So that's the first criminal, who's being an example of what salvation looks like when it's just about me. The second criminal offers a markedly different response. We're told, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, but we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong." What do you notice in this second response? I mean, I I look at this and I highlighted the word justly because I feel like this second criminal understands that, that he's hanging on that cross for a reason. He understands that he committed a horrible crime and that he believes he is getting a just punishment for his actions. This person, he knows he is not good. I mean, he believes he's getting what his deeds deserve. But I also see a level of acceptance in this man, Right? We would say, is he, is he good? No. But he acknowledges that his life has gone wrong. He acknowledges that he isn't where he should be at this point in his life. And then, and then he mutters one of the I think, most inspirational verses in the Bible. When he says this, he said, But then, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So how is a person saved? By grace through faith. Do you see an inkling of faith developing here in this person's life? I mean, he believes that when Jesus dies, Jesus is going to be in the kingdom of God. And yes, he recognizes his life has not led him in the path that he would want to go on. He acknowledges his crime. He is not good by any measure that we would use. But he also recognizes who Jesus is. And he does not try to use Jesus simply as a means to an end, to get him released or escape from that cross. Instead, in faith, he looks at Jesus and simply says, Remember Do you remember Samson in the Old Testament? Samson, the very strong individual. Well, Samson was captured by an enemy army, and then he was tied to two pillars. They physically maim him, and they prepare to kill him. And do you know what Samson does in that moment? We're told in that moment that Samson prayed to the Lord. He said, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. Yes in his darkest moment he prayed and asked God to remember him. When Hannah struggled through years of infertility, when her faith was fragile, when her hope was darkened, she prayed and she made a vow to the Lord saying, "Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's minis- minis- misery and remember me." Yes, there's a theme throughout the scriptures That when a person is in their deepest need, that they can acknowledge God. They can go back to God and say, God, won't you remember me when I'm in the darkest time of my life? And so as this criminal sees where his life has taken him, he hangs on the cross next to Jesus, he reflects on all of that, and then he looks at the person next to him and says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers in an incredible way. Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So do you see what happens here? That in his completely vulnerable state, this man came to a point of trust in Jesus. We might say a point of faith in Jesus. And so I believe that when this man took his last earthly breath, that he opened his eyes and saw himself in the very presence of God. So was this man good? No. Not by any stretch of the imagination was this man good or could be considered good. But you know what he was? He was redeemed. He was redeemed by God because of God's abundant mercy. By grace, through faith, this man was redeemed. God saves because of his mercy. And so I wonder if we could fix our incorrect statement. And instead of saying, good people go to heaven, as if someone could live in such a way that their behavior would be good enough for God, what if we got rid of that? And instead simply said, no, good people don't go to heaven, but redeemed people do. God is in the process of redemption. Because of God's abundant mercy for us, grace is freely accessible. And what we get to do as Christians is we get to live lives of faith. It's lives of trust as we grow in our trust of God and experience that mercy newly every day. And so my goal for you this week, is to live into your redemption. Because as you live as redeemed people of God, you will more starkly understand the grace and the peace that God freely gives to all of us, amen. If you would like more information about Unity Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at www.unitypres.org or visit us on Facebook. This is the Unity Presbyterian Church Podcast. Have a great week.